Hello and welcome back to the Barefoot Pause Podcast. This is Season 1, Episode 12. Today we're going to be talking about air. And that's a, a framework which I use to um, create uh, a dog that matches the Barefoot Pause ideal. That means that we have uh, a dog who can give us the attention that we need. It also gives us the grace to give our dogs the independence that they deserve. And the oil in the whole mixture is the relationship that binds us. So we have A for attention, I for independence, R for relationship. Now, if you want to get in contact with me, please do come across to the website at barefootpaws.com.au. You can get in contact with me directly through there. Uh, You can also just skip all of the nonsense and come to barefootpaws at mail.com. You can send me an email through that. If you want to discuss and get on board with a growing community of like-minded people, then I would, uh, I'd love for you to come over into the Facebook group, which is the Barefoot Paws Discussion Group. Um, it's a growing community of people, and we just have some tailored content just for you guys that are in there. So um, I'd love to see you in there. Let me know what's up. So let's uh, let's start the episode off talking about the A, and that's attention. Now, the way I look at the the training framework, I've got everything planned out in what kind of looks a little bit like a flowchart, um, and that allows me to keep things on track. It allows me to cater uh, something very specific, and ensure that we have a. A, a holistic approach that makes sense ultimately to the individual dog before us so that each drill that we are introducing each drill doesn't have its own unique purpose as a standalone what I what what I I, I find a shame in a in some dog training programs is that we have we essentially send our dog to all of these islands and then when we ask our dog to do something, they've got to go to this island and that's your sit. We go over to this island and that's your recall. We go over to this island. So there's there's no concise picture. There's no concise roadmap for our dog to go, ah, oh, this is this, I'll go and do that. There's, there's no parallels. And when we have this discombobulated system, this uh, with all of these tangents, what we really end up with in, in our dog is a lot of confusion as about my purpose. So the way I like to set things up is I like to have a beginning, I like to have an end, and what happens in the middle is, yes, there is a specific process. This leads to that, leads to this, leads to the other. Now, that process isn't something that's drawn up and, and set in stone we have a particular way of doing things and then we adjust that particular way of doing things to the individual dog before us, like I said. So if we have a look at like the first, I kind of refer to them as clouds, like these are things that sit independently of each other. That's attention, independence and relationship. They exist as individual skills if we have a look at it that way or skill sets. But then... They're all in the same area, right? They're all in our dog's brain. They're all things that our dog can do. So we have attention. What ultimately is attention? Attention is 
uh, a skill whereby our dog is able to uh, master their emotions and pay attention to what we teach them to. So if I want my dog to pay attention to me, then I teach them to focus in on me and avoid the distractions around them. So we, we start the attention off with a marker system. And everybody who's gone through and done the gray it, uh, knows that we have a simple series of four markers that we start with. And that will do just about every dog forever. You can get really fancy with your marker systems and there's a lot of other, uh, there's a lot of other training methodologies that, that have a, a huge amount of markers. Um, but we start with four. That allows me to um, convince my dog that there are certain things that is good for them to do. It allows me to convince my dog that there are certain things that they should not do. It allows me to steer my dog away from something and it allows me to steer my dog towards something. So with those four power tools, what I can do is I can create a lifestyle that I want. I can create then also um, a training package so that my dog understands what it is that we're trying to do. So the, there's, there's an order to teaching these markers and it's uh, I find that it is very important to teach our markers in a specific order. Right? So the first one that we teach is you've done awesome. Here's your reward. Right? Here's your pay. You just worked your butt off for something. So I'm, I'm going to make sure you get paid for it. And then from there, we move over to what is called um, a delta. Like it's basically that's not appropriate right now. Do something different. From there, we go on to a, a keep it going marker. So what you're doing right now, keep chugging along, just doing that. Parallel to those, since we've already taught uh, you're awesome, we also teach so that we through that we can set up um, goalposts on the field of life. Parallel to that, i.e. simultaneously, we're also teaching um, our dog what no means. So the no allows us to establish sidelines in our dog's life. So essentially what our dogs are doing is they are hunting us for yes and they are ensuring that they avoid something that could make no happen. And through, through that little ecosystem of skills, our dog is able to pay attention to us and give us the top of life, and, and sorry, not give us the top of lifestyle. They're able to get on board with the top of lifestyle that is pertinent to the way we live life, right? If I'm out surfing every morning and I want my dog to hang around and at the beach, then they can hang around in the off-lead area at the beach, right? I can find a way of making those four markers the language that my dog understands, and then I go and put that into practical use, okay? So I kind of, with the marker system, I only use two exercises to teach the individual dog in front of us what these words mean. Right? So each of those two exercises then branches off into at least five other things. Right? So the, um, we have a look command, right? So where we are essentially capturing and we are shaping focused eye or disciplined, concentrated, meditative eye contact with us, 
whilst we are ultimately then putting food in front of our dog's noses, moving our hands over their heads full of food and meat and all, all sorts of stuff. And what we are then able to do is we're able to start planting the seed of head control into our dog's lives. So then I can put them into a front position sitting in front of me and they're looking straight up and they're avoiding triggers around them. They're just concentrating on us. So now if we think back to episode one where if something freaky happens, our dogs will seek an escape into a savage skill set. They will run, they will bite, they will fight, they will panic, they will do all sorts of things. But if I can teach my dog, hey, you're triggered, look at me, now my dog can get into an almost meditative state where they are then able to focus on that one thing, that one artificial skill, and navigate life through that without blowing up. It also allows me to not just get head control where I can get them to look at me, I could also get them to look at something else. So that could help me, for example, to get a better indication from my dog where um, in the previous episode I was talking about some uh, scent work. So now I can get my dog to look at me, look at the article, look at me, look at the article, those sorts of things. Um, it's also used in bite sports, for example, where I could get them to look at me, I could get them to look at the decoy, I could get them to uh, those sorts of things, right? So head control is kind of important. I, If my dog is getting triggered by something ultimately what i could do if i wanted to is have a command that says you must now look at me my dog looks at me and my dog is still triggered so i could say hey look at the trigger and my dog looks at the trigger and go ah that's what's freaking you out that might be pertinent in certain areas but when you're in the middle of i don't know suburbia and your dog is like yesterday where we went out for a session and one of the the known reliable triggers is a cat that lives inside a neighbor's house. So it's hard for me sometimes to tell where that trigger is coming from. So uh, it, it may be that, hey, if you point the trigger out to me, I'll make it worth your while. That allows me to identify the trigger, but I'm not really so sure of the efficacy of how I can use that to overcome the trigger. Right? But I can get some other uses. So for my indication for getting my dog to show me where the odor is, for example, um, head control can be quite useful for that. And if you have a look at some of the videos I'm putting up with Kefi at the moment, what you'll notice is that he is orientating, he's orienting himself to me. He's not orienting himself to the source of the odor. He's just he's simply going over and lying down next to it, which then makes me come over and I'm, I'm paying him at the moment because he we're working on something else. So I'm reducing the criteria in one aspect and increasing the expectations in another. I know that he can indicate, but right now I'm working on something else. Right? So it's not so much of a problem. Now, as far as the attention, um, the other, uh, the runway drill goes, so I have a certain way that I teach, yes, um, which I've gotten from two guys that, that I think are, are, are pretty pretty good trainers. Uh, one of those guys is Forrest Mickey. I went to a seminar with him and he was doing what uh, what he calls the simple game. I looked at that and I, I was pretty blown away by it because it, it, it is so simple and it has such a huge result. And also Pat Stewart has uh, a way that um, on his podcast, uh, The Canon Paradigm, he has a way of... Uh, that, that he talked about introducing and conditioning the uh, his yes marker. And I've kind of fused those two together and come up with something that allows 
uh, allows me to insert that response into our dogs so that ultimately what I can do is I can teach them anything I want, but that yes becomes so powerful that it's worth our dog's while, even though they're triggered by something else. It, it fits really well into the pet world and obviously the uh, Forest Mickey and Patch Stewart are, are pretty good and competitive uh, trainers and they get pretty good results from their dogs. So I've fused those two together and what that allows us to do is it sets us up for um, it, that one drill sets us up on one hand to teach what yes means, but it also allows us to um, very, very rapidly and easily get a middle position. It allows us to get into a heel position. It allows us to build a recall. It allows us to condition a muzzle. It allows us to teach our dog to cast. Um, and there's a bunch of things that you can do with the runway, right? So each thing leads on to something else, right? So for example, if I were to go systematically through it, then I would start with the runway. Then I would teach the middle. From the middle, I would teach my dog a bunch of skills, such as how to pivot and stay with me, how to move forwards, how to move left, how to move right, how to turn, how to move backwards. And then those skills, I'm going to put them into something that's more or less disposable. I don't need the middle very much. There aren't too many uh, competitive avenues where I need middle. There's not too many... Um, there's not too many applications in a search environment where I need to use middle. It comes in handy for certain situations, but not that many. Right? Un unless you're doing something like um, GRC, um, which I would encourage you to check out, social responsibility and some of their drive sports, they will require middle. Um, but I find that middle becomes a nice test lab because I've got at least two points of contact with my dog, depending on the size of my dog. It's either my calves or my thighs that... I can then give some guidance to my dog to be able to get them to turn with me and get them to move with me, those sorts of things. Um, but once my dog has started to learn how to do these things in the middle position, if I want my dog to do really well then, now what I can do is I can shove my dog over into the heel position and I can now take all of those skills learned in the middle, I can transfer them over to my left-hand side and now my dog already has a really solid understanding of what these movements are like so we start to generalize those movements into a different position i can have them on my left side i can have them on my right side i can have them on the front i can have them behind me so for example if i'm teaching a really really stylistic heel a competitive heel a really focused heel if i want to go high up in the ranks of a, of, of some sort of an obedience based trial yeah then i would start to incorporate things into the middle before i go into heel from a pet perspective, if I had a super reactive dog with some serious issues, I would go middle first and then heal. So I can I can pile the constraint onto my dog so that the sidelines are so tight that my dog is looking at life as literally a single lane, but they have the tools to stay in that lane, right? So each thing leads, each step leads on to the next, right? Whereas if I've got like a, a casting drill and casting basically is where I go dog I need you to go to the left my dog goes to the left dog I need you to go to the right they go to the right so what I can start to do there is I can have my dog sniffing around on the ground and they can be doing all the search work 
but they're essentially a an independent sensor that is doing what I am getting them to do. So I could I could be out in a field somewhere, I can say search, I can point left, I can blow a whistle a couple of times and the searching dog will continue to search but they're following my lead. So I'm saying they I'm getting their attention, they're functioning as soon as they find something they'll indicate, they'll lie down, they'll do whatever. But my dog then is able to remain attentive to me even though they are working their butt off trying to find whatever it is they're trying to find. Whether that's some sort of a weed, whether that's uh, whether that's an animal, whether that's a bird, whether that's whatever um, uh, scat that I might be looking for. It's not so much important what my dog is looking for. It's the fact that they're looking for it whilst being able to be attentive to me. So I can we call that quartering where the, the dog is essentially quartering into the scent cone and then we can say look we're only going to cover this particular area and that makes my search more methodical which means then if my search is more methodical and more pattern based then the chances of me missing something is greatly reduced so if i'm looking for uh, someone who has uh, gotten themselves lost in, in the woods then what I can do is I can look at my map, I can go, right, here is my grid, I'm only going to search in this particular grid, the other teams are going to search in their grids, all I need to do is concentrate on this. So now I can take a more systematic approach, my dog is still having the best time of their life, they're still looking for whatever odour it is that they're looking for, but I'm now able to dictate to, where my, to my dog which way they search, and then it's up to me to make sure that we leave no stone, no stone unturned. Right? So that's kind of the idea of, of quartering. Now, with the, the casting, I can also get my dog to go somewhere because ultimately I'm giving them a directive to go, hey, go over here. So I could be at point A and I could say, hey, you know, Codes, I need you to go over there to whatever, to whatever mark for whatever reason. And I can send them out there. They'll run out there. Then I can get them to stop. Right? So those are things that, that you can do and if you're heading into a competitive environment, that's certainly something that you will need to do. You will need to have a send out where you send your dog from point A to point B and you may have to stop them where they have to basically come to a dramatic sliding halt, spin around and, and down. Um, I may also have an area search dog where I'll go, right, off your truck. You need to work independently of me. When you're out looking, I don't need you looking close by. So I can teach, I can use the runway to kind of help build a series of skills up, but now I've, I've got heal, I can call a dog off of something, I can get them to hunt in the directions I want to, I can send them out to things. So for for example, I could use that in something else such as um, uh, sled racing, I could do that as, um, on mill races, I can get my dog to start walking and give power out from that, away from me for example. So now I've got a whole gamut of things that I, I can start to do and it all comes from two exercises, which is teaching my markers. Right, so that that's kind of like attention in a in a very brief nutshell. What the skill is is above and beyond what you are invested in. Maintain your relationship with me. Keep some focus on me.
Now the second cloud that I tend to work in is independence. One of the dangers of attention is if I work attention too much, then I'm working into the extreme of dependence. Right? So um, what I want to desperately avoid is having a dog that needs me so badly because if I'm not there, I can't give them a direction. And that's because I've invested too much time in the attention cloud and I've undervalued the primary importance of independence. Conversely speaking, if I concentrate too much on independence, then my dog is not going to be able to give me attention. Right, so if I look at attention and independence as a bit of a bit of a spectrum, right? On one side, I don't want to go too far into dependence, and I don't want to go too far into blowing me off. There's that happy medium of my dog being able to provide me the attention that they need to, to the betterment of the team. And independence is pretty much the same thing. However, what I tend to notice in some very drivey dogs is that they don't tend to thrive too well in, um, let's call it forced independence. Right? So if I leave and my sport dog or my drivey dog doesn't have the capacity to live life without my presence, they start to freak out. They get separation stress. Worst case, they get separation anxiety. They start to rip stuff up. They start to get into things. They start to go sideways in other avenues. They start to make other things happen. Yeah. So I need to have this happy medium of where my dog is able to give attention and be excited, give independence and be excited, give attention when calm, have independence when calm. So the way I teach independence tends to be through, again, two different columns, shall we say. The first one is something completely artificial, and that's place or, or crate training. It doesn't really matter which one I'm using, that both of which are essentially the same thing. The benefit of crate is I can push it further. So if I've got a dog with separation anxiety, I'm, I'm going to use a crate in that. So the idea then is that involuntarily, you are going to go to this crate, and at some point, I'm going to close the door, and, and you have no means of escape. So the dog has to be able to endure a certain amount of time with a certain amount of distractions, with a certain amount of excitement before we start to move on. Yeah. So the place slash crate training, it's really about our dogs relaxing in a, in a tightened and easy to understand geographical context, right? So I don't, I prefer to use a raised surface if we can. Something like a trampoline bed lends itself really, really well to this. A crate also works really well because the boundaries are easier for our dogs to discern. Right? So if that anything I can do that makes things easier for my dog to, as a foundation means the foundations are going to get thicker and stronger. Okay, and it means I can come away from those those boundaries a little bit bit faster, perhaps. But certainly by the time I come away from them then that base skill level is much, much better. But from place, then I, I can, yes, I can teach relaxation. I can use positional force relaxation, or you can use conditional re relaxation. Um, I can also teach stationing 
Yeah, so get up onto this pedestal, get up onto a bar stool, get up onto a picnic um, blanket, get up onto a picnic table, uh, get up on the bonnet of this car, get into this car, get up onto this copper log. I can get my dog to understand getting up on something, getting onto a station, and from there we can start to do some working. That also happens to work really well for things like a groomer's table, the groomer's um, uh, bathtub, the... Um, a vet's table, the inspection table, those sorts of things. I can get my dog to start to do things that they need to do in an emergency situation when they're already freaking out. I can also get them to do uh, things that they may not necessarily like, such as when they're being uh, groomed in a bathtub with a high pressure hose on a hot day and they've, uh, I don't know, they've got a headache. I can't tell all of these sorts of things, so I have to prepare my dog to be able to endure those sorts of things. Now, those static positions also help to build stability into um, things like my sits, my downs, my stands, those basic control positions that we will tend to have. So again, tightening the constraints in, in the beginning, right? so I can use um, uh, like boxes, so that they've got um, like three walls on them, a front, a left and a right, there's a floor to it, and that means that my dog will then have a much tighter constraint in order to be able to stand up and transition into a sit, transition into a down, from a down, transition into a sit, um, from a sit, transition into a stand, those sorts of combinations. And I think some people call them puppy push-ups. So I can get my dog to start flying through those positions. But because they're, for example, on a raised platform or they're in, in an obedience box, then the options are greatly reduced. The constraint is greater, which means that I'm keeping my dog more or less errorless in their learning until we get to a point where we go, all right, so now we don't need that stuff anymore and we wean our dogs away from the equipment. Okay, so that comes in really handy for um, your competitive sort of obedience situations. Yeah, So we, we need to have some distance controls where you need to be able to tell your dog at a distance what to do. That even comes in handy when you're doing area search or you're doing trailing or you're doing tracking where your dog needs to show a very stylized down or a sit and they do it in a certain way. And if they do it in a certain way every time, then it's repeatable. If it's repeatable, it's documented. If it's documented, you can it's you can uphold your case in a court of law. Even when you're doing search and rescue sort of stuff, if we find an article, if like I don't know, a lost wallet, a sock, uh, a glove, a hat, those sorts of things, the dog can indicate in a stylized way where we can go, ah, that's really easy to understand. There must be something over there. Go check it out. And hey, there's an article of clothing. Um, so we can start to read our dogs in a way that makes everything happen really, really quickly. Yeah. Now, I'm, I talked kind of before about um, the chill factor of the crate and place training. It's super important. When we're teaching the crate, it's all about wanting to get in. And then when we get out, we are calmer out than when we went in. And what we're teaching our dogs to do almost vicariously is how to regulate their own excitement. And, with, and in this instance, it's all about minimizing their excitement rather than maximizing it because we're not, we've, we've pushed past the frustration. So our dogs go, I go in the crate, I chill out. 
And it means that by this stage, I can use the crate or the place as a punisher. I can go, whatever it is that you're doing, you stuffed it, you went outside of the, you went out of bounds, I'm putting you in your crate, you can come back out when you're karma. And because I've already taught that the crate is a safe place, I like to be in there, my dog automatically and involuntarily starts to calm down. So it's a win-win situation. Yeah. So the idea of, or, or half of the idea of independence is that we have some um, expression reduction. We're reducing the excitement in our dog. The other part is that, um, in, in my instance, is that we're, we're allowing our dogs to hunt. Right? So again, we can start by foraging, uh, we can um, do some box training, either which way, they all lead on to things such as trailing, such as tracking, and detection. Uh, because a, a dog, in my opinion, dare not read us to get to the end result. We don't know where the perpetrator is hiding, whether they're hiding in a dumpster and they've got 10... Uh, I don't know, 10 kilos worth of cocaine on them. The canine handler can't come along as part of a police search and go, uh, look, uh, let's, just, let's just look over here and let's just look over there. Let's look over there. That sort of stuff isn't going to hold up in a court of law if it gets that far. And then we, we've got some serious issues. And the same thing goes for a search and rescue situation. I can't go, hey, look in this tree hollow. Hey, look in this tree hollow. Because I can look in the tree hollow. What I need is the search dog to be able to function independently, yet still respond to my commands. Because what I can't have is a trailing dog that is just lighting up that lead um, and basically pulling me. I'm 85 kilos. If they're pulling me down the road, if we get to a busy road, that traffic's not going to stop. So I have to be able to communicate to my dog, stop. My dog stops, we have a break in the traffic, we cross the road, we pick up the trail, off we go. The ultimate extreme, in my opinion, is watching some guys do some uh, bear hunting with their uh, foxhounds. Uh, with their, sorry, yeah, with, with their hounds. So, essentially, this is a, 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 an undertaking primarily in the States. And they have dogs like Keffy, right? So, they have... Um, all sorts of different types of hounds. So they're slightly different to the English foxhounds, but same, same, but different. Those dogs are good at their job, and that does not include obedience. They put GPS trackers on their dogs if they have them, and they set their dogs off into the bush, and off they go. They'll find the bear. Now, if, if there happens to be a freeway, and the bears run across the freeway, the dog isn't thinking they are running across that freeway. They're not waiting. They've got no road smarts. So the chances are that they could cause a pile up on the freeway. So the guys have to look at the GPS collars and go, oh, okay, we've got an issue. We've got a, a bunch of dogs, or a dog heading out towards the freeway. They'll get into their forbies, they'll head off and they'll head off the dog. And from there they can get a recall on the dog, right? So that's so much independence like hounds don't need people anyway right? uh, we're just facilitators for that they're almost like cats in that respect they just they hounds don't need people but it doesn't mean that we can teach them the attention that they're supposed to have yeah so through 
through hunting, I can get my dog to experience independence, that I am now facilitating you, which is different to, for example, heal. And if you have a look at it, tracking and man-trailing are the complete opposites of heal. And heal, our dog is paying attention to us. It is their job to keep the lead loose. It is their job to maintain a position relative to us. In trailing and tracking, it is our job to keep the lead loose. It is our job to keep our position relative to them. So it, and, and when I see people getting pulled down the road by their dogs and their dogs are going left and right and left and right, all I see is a dog that would be awesome at some sort of scent work because they're already doing it. But the owner doesn't realize that. They're getting frustrated. And if they knew what their dog was up to, um, it would be awesome to be able to plant the seed of appreciation in that. But then, so we have box training where we can refine. So a box essentially is a miniature hunting ground. So that's all about building excitement, right? Well, I said before that place and crate is all about minimizing excitement, whereas hunting is about maximizing excitement in a productive manner. So through that, I can start to teach resiliency. I can teach an indication, um, like, a, like a staring indication. I can, I can teach discipline to the, the source of the odor. I can teach searching. I can start to include different areas, whether I'm searching on an object such as a car, whether I'm searching in, in um, indoors, somewhere outdoors. I can start to include odor recognition is do I want my dog, for example, to um, go for, um, I don't know, Twinings tea bags or Earl Grey tea bags, or do I want my dog to go for a mobile phone or a, any mobile phone? So it allows me then the independence I use really to teach our dogs to self-regulate their emotions. So we they minimize their excitement they maximize their excitement we can get them trailing tracking and detecting yeah so through that what i'm also able to do is we're able to just get into the behavioral side of things so there are times like box training i've used that heaps uh, clients of mine have used it to uh, overcome a dog's reaction to the sounds of babies crying overcome general fears such as rain wind, loud noises, isolation, um, touch, all of those sorts of things. So the, the box allows us, again, it's a mini, a mini hunting ground and we have a good strategy in place for us to be able to uh, use it to reach a variety of end goals. And that's, that's kind of the point of independence. I can't be doing everything. The dog ultimately is required to overcome things on their own. And this is something that I find a lot of a lot of trainers struggle with, um, especially especially in the the more the more middle of the road training market, is that we have to put everything on command in some way. In all, so for example, how do I stop my dog from barking? Well, teach them to be quiet. That doesn't stop a dog from barking. Barking is a natural behavior. So they're going to bark at any time. Can I tell them to be quiet when they're barking? Yes. Does it stop them barking? No. So what, I, what I'm required to do is teach my dog when is the correct context, what type of barking is acceptable, when is the incorrect context, and what type of barking is unacceptable. Yeah. So um, being able to teach my dog some to 
avoid being a slave to their autonomic responses, right? So again, going back to uh, savage versus civil, we're getting our dogs to overcome that savage nature in order to fit in with the lifestyle. And we are also providing an avenue where our dogs are able to explode into that savage nature. Now the last cloud that we have is relationship. Relationship is, is kind of important. We don't bring dogs into our homes, generally speaking, so that we don't have a relationship with them. Yeah, Be that a working relationship, be that a, uh, a companion relationship is kind of irrelevant. But there's always some form of relationship. And obviously, you're listening to this, you want a beneficial relationship for you as well as your dog. So what are the two, again, I've got two columns underneath the relationship. We have liberty and we have play. Dogs don't spend a lot of time under command. They spend maybe an hour a day under command. We invest so much time in teaching our dogs commands and yet for 23 hours a day, they're free to do whatever they want. That's why the very first thing that I talked about was markers so that we can teach lifestyle. If we teach a lifestyle, then I can continue to change and adapt to my lifestyle as, as much as I want. My dog has the best chance of staying on the same page with me. If I teach my dog this simple, I say simple in inverted commas for those who can't see. If I teach simple obedience commands, and like the basics, come, sorry, leave that and come to me, ignore that, walk with me, right? And my sit stays, my down stays, all that sort of stuff. I teach that. I get a dog with some skills, for sure. But then when is my dog able to be free, be themselves, and not get into mischief? And at daycare, this is something that we see a fair bit. So why? Because too many trainers concentrate on too many obedience rooted skills and they forget about liberty the other 23 hours a day so liberty ultimately allows me to teach my dog how to lead their best life when they're not competing when they're not working when they're just chilling out hanging out at home right on the, the so liberty itself with us tends to be less exciting we're hanging out at the beach we're sitting at the coffee shop we're at a barbecue we're doing whatever we're chilling out having a good time right? there might be some play with other dogs whatever that may be the uh, daycare they can go and run a mark they have their enrichment periods they have their their tussles yes they can also have their disagreements because who doesn't it's learning how to navigate these parts of life that's where the gold is at for our dogs the flip side of that is to give our dogs some sort of savage expression right so this is where battle breeds really come into their own um, because they have this wonderful ability to play tug and really go to town and so with with our dogs they, they will all generally speaking they'll, they'll all happily play tug or some sort of a combative expression right so what we will tend to do 
is we will have some sort of a game that we enjoy for sure but that is secondary to what the the dog before you enjoys right so the first part of play now we as humans we must possess the toy and we have to we have to kind of overcome ourselves because we even the least competitive people i know they still grab a hold of the tug toy and walk away with it victorious but what we want is for our dog to possess the toy it's counterintuitive. Everything in, in the back of your head is screaming, no, they shouldn't possess the toy. They'll dominate us, rah, rah, rah. Well, that's not really the case. So what we'll do is we'll have some sort of a game, whether that be a, a tennis ball, whether that be tug, whether that be whatever it is, we're getting our dog to possess the toy and learning to strive for possession of the toy. Again, go back a couple of episodes to resource guarding versus possession. Have a look in the Barefoot Paws discussion group. I put up some great videos there that... that show dogs communicating with each other they're struggling for possession without guarding a resource right? so it is important that our dogs understand possession is okay possession is cool and from there we can start to learn surrender because if we start to learn surrender of an object and we can put that on command then dude that saved coda's life twice she has put a, a, a condom in her mouth. We're out for a walk. We're at a car park. That is the local kissing point. She's on a long lead experiencing some liberty. I happen to look over at the right time. I tell her that she's got to spit it out and she she doesn't. Like, sorry, she does She spits the thing out. Like, I don't want to put my hand down there and pull that out. And by the time I notice it, that bloat that she's going to have, right, that that blockage i'm not going to notice that for days until it's too late and then it's like that's major surgery and it's life-threatening she's had a brown snake in her mouth so i've had to get her to spit that out and in that particular situation she was off lead she was six meters in front of me i had a board and train dog to heal next to me i had one of my daughters in a backpack on my back i had my wife behind me with our eldest daughter it wasn't a simple case of, hey, run over and get that thing out of the dog's mouth because that's a brown snake. And for my South African friends, brown snakes are dangerous in this country. They're not something just to not worry about. They're not big worms. These guys will kill you. So I've got to get that brown snake out of my dog's mouth. I had to repeat my command. I had said it twice. She spat it out. How did I do that? I did that. Through play, through constantly providing a nice consequence, constant reinforcement, right? Making that reinforcement harder to achieve. And here's the, the big thing was applying intelligent pressure. So I'm making Coda feel somewhat threatened, somewhat scared, then taking that pressure off. And through that gameplay, we're able to simulate her going after, I don't know, what would a Malamute go for? A seal, something larger. Right? being up and around like large prey animals caribou those sorts of things so we're kind of exploding that code so when i need it most she's going to deliver it so just spitting the toy out has saved her life twice over what i can also do is i can teach a retrieve that way right? i can get them to bring the tennis ball back to me so i don't have to carry two or three around so I can get more fun and the relationship gets deeper and deeper as I learn to spin my dog's dials and speak my dog's language. I can also use little power-ups as they're called. So just little, little skills like a spin this way, a spin that way, 
and all of a sudden while I'm healing, I can get my dog to spin clockwise. While the dog is about to come uh, come into a front position, I can get them to spin anti-clockwise. I can get them to do all these things, but that little skill is a little pepper. It makes things more fun. So the the drudgery, shall we say, of of really pushing out skill sets which are re massively repetitive and a bit of a drudge, what I can now do is I can, I can add some excitement into them and my dog goes, oh, that's amazing. And some dopamine comes up and my dog's having a great time again. So the relationship is really important in order for us to be able to get the best out of our dogs. Heal is not about abstinence of something. That's what really the social, that's loosely walking, right? Heal is about getting our dogs to push into a behavior. So I ha I've got a client and she's got a, a, a cattle mix with, with a bit of a traumatic history by the look of things. Um, but man, this dog is on fire. She has this nice prance when the dog's healing, the dog's pushing up, really, really nice. Some things that I've seen dogs, um, uh, people work for months to try and get this sort of stuff and this dog naturally has that amount of excitement. So she's able to be really expressive and she's prancing, she's pushing up when she's excited. It's really, really good stuff. It's not a heel where the head is low and the dog is walking slow and giving up on the will to live. The obedience commands themselves are always being driven and fueled by the hope for yes. Yeah, so... We, everything that we do is based and pepped up by something like one of these little power-ups so that I can get my dog to endure long durations in the hopes of I'm going to get something out of this. And those power-ups allow me to maintain a higher state of excitement throughout the entire duration. Yeah, so a relationship works well from a pet perspective because it allows me to play at my, at my dog's level. It allows me to teach my dog how to live the other 23 hours of the day. And from a, a, a functional perspective, it allows me to teach my dog to play a game a certain way with a certain amount of expression that then I can put into an obedience command. I can put it into detection, tracking, trailing. I could put it into bite sports, all those sorts of things. Because now my dog has something that doesn't simply doesn't simply it, it doesn't immediately cease the behavior. I'm doing something in the hopes of getting a, a, a really massive dopamine kick, and then I never know how this game's going to play out. Sometimes I get the toy, sometimes I get to possess the toy, sometimes I lose the toy. There's that unknown. There's that the predictable predictable joyous event with the unpredictable outcome at the end. And that's what keeps that game ticking over so well. Yeah, So relationship is hugely important for us and it's easy to overlook, but it's something that if we look at things holistically, right, then the relationship really is the, the 23 hours that make the one hour really, really worth it. So I'd encourage you to have a look at getting some sort of gameplay for your dog and being able to figure out what is it that gets my dog's blood boiling and how can I more or less exploit that? Now that kind of wraps up the, um, the episode for today. Obviously, 
we we start to get the idea that when we're getting some training in what we want is a concise package with intelligent design what i want to and and this is where whilst you can do a lot of work on your own you can google stuff you can youtube it you can vimeo it you can TikTok it you can instagram it you can facebook it you can reddit it i don't know you can you can go to all of these different sources and you can pick out all of these little bits and pieces but from that from you've got to find some sort of commonality so that your dog understands ah this springs from that this goes with this and they can start to connect the dots far easier so if we have a holistic and concise package then life becomes more predictable for our dogs and predictability kills anxiety if i know what is going to be happening if i know how to assert some control over my environment if i know how to interact in a certain situation then i get less scared about it and that's crucial particularly for a dog for us we start to get nervous we get a little bit shy oh, i'm just gonna go get a drink from the bar oh i'm just gonna go and pat on my nose i don't know for a dog those sorts of situations can easily devolve into life and death situations very easily so when my dog is feeling like they're in a life or death situation they don't have time to be civil they're going to be savage but if we teach our dogs to pay attention to us to be independent of us and to be in relationship with us then the rest of life starts to make more sense to our dogs the life and death situations that they will perceive right, that's unavoidable and it, honestly it shouldn't be avoided those life and death situations that they perceive become surmountable rather than overwhelming so whilst i encourage everybody i talk to look you've got you've got a way of teaching things get this book on trick training um, kira sundance has an awesome book full of tricks in there so if you want some ideas and inspiration grab one of her books and look at it and go awesome now i've got this way of training i've got this particular structure that Stu showed me so how can i get those tricks with this structure and then my dog goes oh we're at this stage oh you're saying this this is what you mean when i'm doing that things become far easier so then my then you're becoming less frustrated as things go on because you know to start off with i plant the seed i get them hopeful i get them enjoying the thing and from there i start to make small gains and as we make small gains okay so now i've got the foundation of a skill now we start to add on some other things now we start to increase the complexity in a certain way that my dog understands and then we start to give some independent function to that and then our, our dogs are able to go oh we're, we're doing this thing again but it's at a different application so i'm learning to ride a bike by you showing me in a certain process how we are going to ride a bike i'm learning to drive a car with a certain process of learning how to ride that bike and drive the car i'm seeing the similarities are uh, this is like when i'm turning here oh you mean pull yeah accelerate out of the corner here my dog is starting to be able to generalize how to learn and as long as our dogs are able to figure out how to learn they start to become experimental they start to make mistakes and that's awesome they should be making mistakes because then they figure out what not to do 
and they figure out what to concentrate on. Yeah. So being able to have a holistic package allows our dogs to push more buttons, be more ready to push more buttons, and that reduces the distress for all of us in training. Awesome source, that concludes the uh, cloud-based uh, episode for this week. Uh, I'd encourage you to have a look at the things that you're doing and just continually come back to the, the basic foundations. Um, everything that we do is an application of fundamental skills. Doesn't matter whether that's driving a car, flying a plane, uh, performing surgery, doesn't matter what it is. Painting a masterpiece, writing poetry, just sending off on a massive jump. It doesn't matter what those things are. What matters is that you're applying fundamental principles into complex situations. And through the, the mastery of those fundamentals, with that, with that comes frictionless execution of whatever it is that you're trying to do. And if you have a concise way of being able to transfer that fundamental knowledge into more complex arenas, then everything starts to build ahead of steam and makes things a lot easier and a lot more fun and a lot more pleasurable for everybody. Okay? Now, I hope that this has helped you out. I hope that you got some inspiration from it. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it. If you did, please allow me to feed my dogs. And uh, I, uh, you know what? If you just If you rate the episode on the app of your choice more people will start to see it and then more people will start to learn things yeah um please don't try and keep a one up on other people let them know my dogs are getting hungry you can review it reviews also allow people to see what's going on so it just drives more people to find the podcast and and get as much joy as i hope that you're getting out of it yeah so if you could rate if you could review if you could subscribe, that'd be awesome. Thanks for that. And a special thanks to you Kiwis who appear to be really loving what's going on. Stoked. If you've got a particular question with respect to what we're talking about today, please hop along into the Barefoot Paws discussion group on Facebook. Um, it's called the Barefoot Paws discussion group. You can also contact me at barefootpaws.com.au get onto my website you can send me a message through there you can read all about it you can also contact me directly at barefootpaws at mail.com for any personalized questions or some training that you might want some help with please do reach out all right thanks guys listen to the music <laughs>